when they asked me how was your trip, I said, well, it was amazing. We saw a blind lady healed. We saw somebody who couldn't walk, run up a hill. And then I said, so it was an amazing trip. And I just left it hanging like that in this finance committee. It felt a long time they were silenced for. And then Mohammed, who was this councillor on the local council, turned to me and he said, I've had a pain in my leg for three years that the NHS don't know what it is, don't know how to solve it. He puts his hand on me, he says, I want to be well, John. Mm. And so I say, great, Mohammed, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you afterwards. But he had to leave early. Two days later, he rings me up. He says, John, we've got to meet. He says, since I touched you, I've had no pain. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. Inspired is all about uh, meeting mates of mine of different walks of life if you're new to us and hearing great stories that will stir faith, that will encourage you. And, you know, we're often battered and bruised by uh, so much negativity in the press. We're bombarded by bad news stories and stuff that induces anxiety. So we just want to counteract that completely. And there's so much good stuff going on around the world and around the country. This week, we're going to be um, looking more UK-specific and I'm really thrilled to have uh, with us my good friend, John McGinley. Welcome, John. Thank you so much, Simon. Great to be with you. So good to have you. So I think we go back about 10 years through uh, New Wine stuff. Uh, You were on the leadership team there, you're now a trustee, but uh, now you are heading up uh, Myriad, which is like this innovative, out-the-box church planting network. You're part of the Gregory Center for Church Multiplication. Uh, you were the, uh, the the head pastor at uh, Holy Trinity uh, Leicester, which I came and did your weekend away, didn't I? Actually, just when you'd handed yep. on to the wonderful Elaine Sutherland. So plenty, plenty of links in the mix. But um, John, I don't know much about your background. I, I do know that you were a vicar's kid. My wife, Lizzie, was a Indeed. vicar's daughter. She hated being introduced on arriving at her new school as the vicar's daughter. It was a label from the get-go. Was that bad for you? How, how was it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, there was a real sense of trying to avoid any connection with that at all and just recognizing how that was perceived by my mates. And so that was definitely a challenge for me as I grew up and growing up in that home, but really wrestling with this sense of, okay, who am I? And and rebel quite strongly between 11 and 15 Mm -hmm. uh, from that. When I went to secondary school, there was a sense of that natural um, space from your parents and uh, they're not dropping you off at at school. And so I really deliberately defined myself with no Christian faith involved and got into a group of friends who we were doing, yeah, just stuff that wasn't great in terms of smoking and shoplifting and vandalism, just just almost just trying to find a way to, to define myself freely mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the way I'd been defined within my parents' faith and my dad's role as a vicar. Um, I always say that I'm really glad I rebelled at 11 yeah. because I was really good at rebelling, but it, there wasn't too much that I could do that set the course of my life. And then got to 15 and I had done whatever I wanted, mm-hmm. but I, I realized that I was miserable. Right. And realizing that actually this wasn't doing me good. And so in that moment of realization, sort of the equivalent of getting to the pigsty, the bottom of the of the trough, I looked around and thought, who actually has got any sense of doing this thing called life well? Mm-hmm. And I had to admit, even though there was hardly anybody my age in my parents' church, it was the people I met through the church. And so I went on the equivalent of an alpha course uh, that my dad led. Mm-hmm. 
and came to the conclusion that if this thing was true, that Jesus was God, came to this world because he loves me that much, gave his life for me, it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened in this mm -hmm. world. And so I did got a deal. I said, okay, if this is true, then I'm giving you one chance. And if you blow it, then I'm finished with mm -hmm. you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I've been told is what I need to do, which is to give my life to you and say, you come in and take charge. Mm -hmm. And when he came in and took charge, I just wept. Wow. And because he was just cleaning me up. In that moment, I felt that I didn't know the Holy Spirit. My, you know, my dad's church, it was an Anglican church. They didn't teach anything about the Holy Spirit. But I now know the Holy Spirit was just washing me clean in that moment of saying, come in. And I knew that he'd come in uh, and I was different and that he was real. As we all know, it doesn't mean that it's easygoing and it's not tough, but he never, he never left. He never let me down. Uh, and I started to actively try and follow him. And that meant leaving this group of friends. It meant trying to follow in his ways. Yeah, not many peers my age who were Christians at that initial stage. But then actually, Youth for Christ came into my school. Mm -hmm. And they were the guys that discipled me from uh, from 15 onwards. And they gave me a way to actually actively begin to follow Jesus. And then age 17, was that a key point? Yeah, so I'd, I'd then done my very best to follow Jesus, but I got to 17 and I was going, I can't, I can't do this in my own strength. Mm -hmm. And there was a real sense of me recognizing that even though I believed in Jesus, even though I knew that he was real, this was not working. I couldn't live what I was reading in the Bible in my own strength. And so I was on a weekend that Youth for Christ were leading, and they invited people just to surrender to Jesus. Yeah. And I cried out. I said, Jesus, I just can't do this in my own strength. Would you come and help me? And again, the Holy Spirit just came and filled me. Uh, some leaders prayed for me. They prophesied over me. Just uh, I can remember in that moment, they prophesied about me being a great man of God, a leader of the church. They even saw me standing on some stages. Right. And, you know, it's that, it's that moment where here's this spotty 17-year-old yeah, yeah. who's like, again, blubbering and a complete mess and was not getting it right. But God was saying, this is what I have for you, John, mm. in your life. And this is what I'm going to do. And I left that moment, and again, I was totally transformed. I went into school, couldn't stop talking about Jesus uh, to everyone. I did it in a completely um, ineffective way, uh, but there was an overflow. Yeah. For the first time, there was an overflow because the Holy Spirit had, had filled me. I went and, and talked to my parents about this, and my mum said, do you, did you speak in tongues? Mm -hmm. I said, no, I didn't speak in tongues. I said, why do you ask this? She said, well, when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what we can expect to happen. Mm -hmm. I said, you know about this stuff. And, uh, and she said, yeah, we, we know about this stuff, but it's not in our church. And we, we just didn't really know how to share it with you. Right. And, and so I said, no, I didn't speak in tongues. And they gave me a book um, by Jackie Pullinger, mm -hmm. um, Chasing the Dragon. And I, I read it. And again, I was a little peeved that they hadn't shared this with me before. But 
I then read in that amazing story of Jackie Pullinger in Hong Kong and dealing with all the drug addicts and her coming to the end of herself and saying, I can't do this, and then getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And then I read about these people that she was ministering to who were prophesying on day one coming to faith and speaking in tongues. And I, I said to God, come on, you know, not a great prayer, but they're prostitutes and drug addicts, yeah. and you gave them all this on day one, and I've been trying to follow you for three years, and I haven't had any of this. Yeah. So I now ask you to give me the gift of tongues, and I knelt in my bedroom, and I started to speak in tongues. Wow. There's been so much that we haven't handled well about the gift of tongues. There's, there's things in which it became the badge of honor and, and a reward for being a really good Christian. It's none of that. But what I would say is it was the most significant gift the Lord gave me after salvation mm. because it just opens up every other gift. It takes you from being self-dependent where you can control everything and you pray this language that you don't understand, but you do it in, in faith and in dependence on him. And, and the result is it, it just it builds this close communion with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And it creates this dynamic of being willing to step out in faith, yeah. even though it doesn't all make sense. Mm. And that was the key moment for me of really being released into everything that God wanted to do in my life from that moment. Brilliant, yeah. And a key from the Acts of the Apostles was a hallmark of being filled with the Spirit was boldness. So you had a new boldness, did you? Yeah, as, as I said, from, that was from the, from the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that came right from the beginning. And from that moment, yeah, there was just a freedom just to speak about Jesus and a longing to, mm. just, just a joy in wanting to talk to others about him. It wasn't that I didn't know him before. It was just that there was a release because the Holy Spirit was giving that boldness. And I learned over time to, to be more effective in that. And that has just been one of the, the marks of the Spirit's work in me is just this freedom to... Uh, to to share Jesus, to take risks, to add, and that wasn't there before. And I think that that's one of the things that is is so important is we tell the whole story because people look at you, they look at me, and they say, "Oh, you know, you're an experienced minister. Of course, you can do mm. it." And it wasn't always there, and it was it was born out of the Spirit's work in my life. Yeah. So you headed off to Birmingham University, and uh, yeah, any vignettes from that time? Yeah, well, what happened at, at 18 was a growing sense that some of that prophetic word from that moment of coming to faith and being filled with the Holy Spirit on that weekend with Youth for Christ was growing in me in a sense of, I am being called to, to, to leadership within the church. And there's a great moment from a Pentecostal pastor who prophesied, because he said to me, he said, John, I'm going to prophesy something I don't really believe in, which is I think you're being called to be a leader in the Church of England, <laughs> but I, I don't. I don't actually really believe in the Church of England, and and that, that that's a good church to be part of. But for some reason, I think God's calling you to it. So, um, in a in a sort of counterintuitive way, that felt like a confirmation of what I'd begun to sense. Mm -hmm. But at university, what I, what I sense I needed to do was just to continue to uh, to live out my faith, uh, to grow in leadership and uh, and serving Jesus in amongst doing my economics and geography studies. And again, through those times, seeing people come to know Jesus, 
and really feeling called not just to join in and become immersed in the Christian union culture, but actually becoming immersed in the lives of people who didn't yet know Jesus so they could come to know him. So on the corridor in um, in our hall of residence, uh, Fiona was a young woman who was studying um, at Birmingham University who, was, who had a very um, debilitating disease called Friedrich's ataxia that meant that she was in a wheelchair and she had, had uh, carers. And we just uh, got to know each other. And, and I remember talking with her and her saying, I don't think I could be a Christian because I don't have enough time. Uh, because all you Christians, you're so active in everything that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it just takes me so much time to study. I don't think I could do all of that. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, you, you'll find your way. But Jesus is real. Why don't you ask him to reveal himself to you? So um, she said, would he do that? And I said, yes, he would. And she said, how would that happen? I said, well, I'll pray with you. So um, so I said, Lord Jesus, just come and reveal yourself to Fiona now. And I prayed, I prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. And I said, so what did you experience? And she said, nothing. <laughs> I said, what do you mean nothing? I said, she said, no, I didn't, I didn't feel anything. I said, you didn't feel anything. You didn't feel a peace. You didn't feel a trembling. You didn't feel anything. You didn't feel God speaking into your imagination. Nothing. I went back to my room in, in my university hall residence and I shouted at God. I said, that was your chance. <laughs> Why didn't you turn up? You blew it. I stood out there for you and you just hung me out to dry. But of course, God knew what he was doing. And a couple of weeks later, Fiona said, I've given my life to Jesus. Mm. I said, how did that happen, Fiona? She said, the thing that I couldn't get over was how shocked you were that nothing had happened. Hmm. So nothing had happened for me, but you just couldn't believe that nothing had happened. And therefore, I was left with this sense of John really believes that God is real and that he really expected God to turn up. And so I started to read the gospel you've given me, and I started to think about this. And so I decided to ask Jesus myself if he would show himself to me. And when I did it, he did. And, and it's just that sense of God could use my ineptitude in which I could say, you need to do it this way, Lord. Yeah. But even though it wasn't the way that it was going to happen, Fiona, it was something that I was doing authentically. I was sharing my life with Fiona, and she saw in me this sense of, a longing for her to know what I had and a, and a surprise that, that it hadn't happened and somehow God had used that. Brilliant. I stayed in halls of residence for the whole of the three years, but I was president of that hall of residence, um, very involved in, in leading the social life and being engaged in the sporting life of, of that university. And then just seeing people naturally come to faith and, and recognize my Christian faith. Um, I remember on a, in, in a semi-final of a, of a football competition, uh, I was complaining at the ref that it was a terrible decision. Mm-hmm. And one of my mates on the team says, look, ref, he's a Christian. He doesn't lie. <laughs> that, that, that is definitely not the right decision that you've made there. And, and just realizing that people were looking at my life and going, there is something different. And just having the privilege of seeing many of those come to faith and through natural friendship uh, at university. Mm-hmm. 
And you graduated, you went on a graduate scheme at Harrods, tell us about that. Yeah, so Harrods was, was really interesting in that I came to the end of university and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, you're calling me to lead your church. I don't think I'm experienced enough yet to do that. And so I need to find a place where I can learn more about how I live out my faith um, in this world. And I tried to find a job that would fit my skill set of leadership and people. Um, I loved entrepreneurial stuff and, and business. And careers advice at, at the university said, why don't you try retail management? And I got accepted onto a scheme with John Lewis, but what I then realized was that they were gonna send me around the country to their different stores every three, four months to, uh, to try something different in a different context. And if I did that, I couldn't belong to a local church. Mm-hmm. So I thought, where is there a retail graduate scheme where they don't send you around the country? And it was Harrods, because mm-hmm. there's only one store. And so I went and applied for Harrods, uh, got the job there, and it was the gift of God for me. I, even though that's decades ago now, I still look back at what was a really tough environment in that um, Mohammed Al-Fayed was leading um, Harrods. He was leading it with, with a rule of fear. Right. And so he would, he would come around this domain, his kingdom, where he was the ruler of, of Harrods, and he would walk the, uh, the, the different departments every single day with four bodyguards, and he would he would just bark orders, and he would sack people on the spot. Hmm. And so um, my friend was sacked one Saturday for having an untidy light bulb stand. Hmm. And then then the HR department would come around and say, "Well, of course you're not really sacked, but we have to move you to another place so that Mr. Alfred doesn't see you in the same place again." Right. And and that was the really corrupt culture of Harrods and and yeah we were we were I would say that we were bullied by our senior management as managers of departments I was leading the sports department at the time we were beating budget uh, by every um, mark you could see and we I was really trying to build the life of of the team that I had in that in those departments we had a softball team and because we were dealing with riding up we we went riding and and had some stables that we took the team to and my manager said you're too friendly you're too um encouraging you're, you're too empowering of your staff even though we were beating targets hmm. and i i would go home and i would cry at times because hmm. there was such a pressure on you but again people um came to faith and um, because they saw something of the peace of god the generosity of god in me caroline was um uh, was a colleague on the graduate scheme and she was really struggling with the pressure that um that i was talking about and she sat down with me one day and said how do you cope with this, John, in the way that you're coping? And I, and I shared faith with her. I said, this is because I'm not on my own, Caroline. Mm. Um, Jesus is with me, and I stand with him every day in this place, and I know his love for me. And she was so deeply moved by this that um, in the canteen at Harrods, she said, I want what you have, John. And I shared with her how she could come to faith. And she, she came to faith in Harrods canteen um, because she recognized the difference that Jesus was making in my life in that context. Wonderful. And I was serving in a local church. I'd get off the tube at 
6.30 on a, on a Friday night and go straight into a youth club and uh, helping to run that for, for kids in our local area in Fulham and uh, just getting stuck in with, with church life and trying to, to learn. And when, when people ask me what advice I would give them in terms of stepping into what, what God has for us, I'd say just be proactive. Mm. We need to listen to the Spirit and find the next step where He's leading us. But but don't do that from a standing start. Just get involved in stuff God's involved in, yeah. and and He'll He'll f- help you find your way. And that's what I was doing. And it was out of that that um, that people started to say, "Do you think God might be calling you to to ordination?" And I was reading Timothy and feeling the fire of God as I read about this young man being equipped for ministry and thinking, I think this might be the time. So after three years of retail management, I went forward for discernment. Um, The Church of England was a little nervous about appointing me and uh, saying yes. And I remember saying to this old nun who was part of the discernment process, look, I'm arrogant i'm stubborn <laughs> i've got real conviction you know i i really want to go after the things of god um do you think do you think i could fit into this church and she said we need a bit of backbone in the church of england john so i i think you should you should go forward and so i got selected and went off to train uh, for donation at trinity college in bristol and at that time um Bridget, my my now wife for thirty years, she and I got married, and uh, and we started to train in Bristol. So you're unleashed out of Bristol, uh, Trinity Bristol. You're now a curate in Hounslow, in a multi multicultural yep. area, planting a church. Go for it. Yeah. So as I as I go into ordained ministry, the thing that is gripping me is that the church has to be this missionary, disciple making movement that we're called to be. I'd had this experience of seeing people come to know Jesus. And so um, I, I come into this church and we've been discussing about planting a church. And, and back in uh, the 90s when this was, this wasn't as common as it is now. And there was this redundant church building in uh, Hounslow West. And there's a small group of people who've got a heart for starting a church there. And when you go into this building, it's freezing cold, the roof leaks, it's got two plug sockets. And if you turn on the kettle with the overhead projector, as it was then, and the amp for the for the music, it blew the whole system. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what we were dealing with. Um, but this, this small community of people really believed that we could reach people in Hounslow West. It's a multicultural context, uh, very dominated by a Muslim community, a Hindu and Sikh community. Yet God had brought together this this group. And so we started to pray. By God's grace, um, he provided some money that meant that we could completely redevelop that building. And so we had heating and we had new seats and we had rooms to meet in and uh, and that was a real gift and when we went back in we had this vision of being a community that reflected the community around mm-hmm. us so that we we needed to be a multicultural community and so we started to pray for that we started to raise up a leadership team that reflected the local community with people from different cultures and again as we did that what we discovered is and that a, a church that begins to reflect the community gives confidence to that community to say this could be for them. Mm. 
And we again saw people from every um, different cultural background. We saw yeah, people from a Hindu, a Muslim culture. Well, there were a lot of people coming in as asylum seekers um, into the uh, local area, coming into Heathrow Airport. And so um, I remember a young guy called Mohammed who, uh, who became Stephen when we baptized him. He came in and he said, I've been talking with these people called the Mormons because I'm looking for faith. Right. Um, I've come in from Iran, um, but I don't, I don't know uh, how to find this, this Christian faith, this Jesus that I'm being told about. But what I do know is they're not the real thing. Right. <laughs> so, so what I want to know is, are you the real thing? And, uh, and we talked with him, and then we prayed for him, for the Holy Spirit to come. And God just met him in the moment. He said, okay, that's the, that's the real thing. That's the Jesus I've met in my dream. Wow. And, uh, and you just realize again how, how supernatural God is and how real he is to people and how he knows how to save people. And we had weddings that were from, uh, from Muslim converts, and we were their family. Yeah. We had to be their family. We had to lend them the, the clothes for their weddings, and we had to be the family at their reception. Um, but they'd come to faith, and they'd met each other in the church, and we were being this multicultural family where we saw the church growth and mainly conversion growth. We had 150 people, over 20 different nationalities in that church, uh, and it was it was a stunning experience. But I was only able to be there as the curate. And so when my curacy came to an end, there was, there was a long-term issue that I'd, I'd sort of begun to wrestle with, which is because we were just planting this as part of an Anglican parish, I wasn't actually allowed to build the church to be a disciple-making community because the expectation was, was that all of these people coming to faith would join the proper church down the road. Right. Uh, that was the main parish church. And that's where they would be in discipleship groups. And that's where they'd learn how to worship properly because uh, we weren't using any of the Anglican um, sort of liturgy and structures. And and I thought, Lord, it's it's got to be free from all of this. We've got, to, we've got to empower people to disciple each other. It can't just be the ordained leaders. And so I went looking for a place that was up for, we want to be a disciple-making community. And somehow that, that led me to a market town in Leicestershire from London, which was Hinckley, mm -hmm. really just because they were saying, we want to learn to be disciple-makers. Um, and so they'd, they'd started that journey with Cell Church at that time. And they said, would you come and would you, would you help us do that? And I... I went there just because they were, had got the same hunger for that uh, as me. And so went up there at the just beginning of two, yeah, 2000, 2001. And very different context, you know, market town in Leicestershire, um, very low mobility, low ambition, uh, great people, but they'd never lived anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And there was no multiculturalism. It was just white monoculture. But what you find is you find the same Jesus who's working with his church and the same Holy Spirit that's touching people uh, just in a different context. And I learned to contextualize things there. And we began to plant these cell groups and raise up leaders. And, uh, and again, the church uh, grew and 
people came to faith and we ran alpha in a pub uh, and uh, yeah, I, I remember my friend Nick, who we'd begun to watch football together because uh, he loved football. And um, he uh, came into the church uh, because he really fancied uh, one of the church <laughs> members. And I said, "Well, look, if you're gonna if you're gonna marry her, then we better start talking about Christian faith, Nick." And he came on Alpha in that in that pub, and uh, he was the DJ from a local. Um, uh, a local radio station and he'd invited me on just because I was thought for the day kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And afterwards we'd started to talk about football. We'd met up and then he came to faith on, on Alpha and he's now a vicar somewhere else. Um, uh, just because we were again, just saying to the church, we need to look outwards. We need to, to see the Christian faith touch other people's lives. And whenever you do that, I'm absolutely convinced you're aligning you're aligning yourself with the the purposes of God, and it doesn't mean it's not difficult. We're, we're living in a context and a culture where the church hasn't learned how to do this well. We're not confident in how to share faith, but if you'll have the courage just to line up with that call of the Great Commission, then every time we've done that in church, God's turned mm. up. And we've got a lot of stuff wrong. There's disappointments. But the church has always grown and people have come to faith because we're, I think we're just lining up with the purposes of God. Hi, folks. I hope 2024 has got off to a good start. I think most of you know this podcast comes out on the auspices of Great Lakes Outreach working in Burundi, which is still annoyingly the hungriest and poorest country in the world. And there are so many positives. I mean, I, I look, look back at last year, see that we've impacted a couple of hundred thousand people in a very meaningful way. I've got all these lovely photos of prostitutes that we've helped get out of prostitution, giving them a new skill as tailors. I think of street kids that we've helped get off the streets. I think of microfinance loans that we've given out to poorest of the poor people, mainly widows who have managed to start up businesses and, and are now thriving, being lifted out of poverty. Mud huts that have been able to knock down and build sort of brick houses with a tin roof and a door that can be locked to actually protect these vulnerable ladies. So many people have come into relationship with Jesus, come to faith. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. In that context, at the same time, there have been 40% food price rises of basic foodstuffs, and there have been five hikes in the last three months of fuel, which just adds up to crippling inflation that affects everybody. It's so challenging. So if you want to back us, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it, you you sewing into the work. And that's so you can go do that at greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. We'd love it for you to journey with us. Greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. And keep enjoying the podcast. Now let's get back to it. So I picture the majority of your uh, working life thus far at, at Holy Trinity Leicester. And as I said earlier, I caught the back end of it with that church weekend. I, and I found a, a body that was extremely mobilized, energized. It was all, everyone, all hands on deck. Uh, and I guess that's what you handed on to Elaine when you left. But uh, in the early days, it wasn't like that, was it? No, it's really interesting in that in the early on, I inherited a really well-taught church that was organized well into Bible study groups, that was well taught and really well organized in terms of keeping the saints healthy right. and fed and structured. Um, and, and so, yeah, I was really grateful for all of that. But what I realized was that nobody had a sense of their own 
calling, their identity, what God wanted to do with them. Mm-hmm. And I felt God just lead me to go around the church asking people, what are you called to? And consistently they would say back to me, I've never been asked that question before. Mm. And I said, okay, well, let, let's go on a journey to discover what that would be. And and what my job in that context, where they got great kids work, great sort of Bible study groups, was to just introduce this sense of we have a missional call. God has put a few hundred of us in the middle of Leicester in a church together. And the purpose for that is not to keep you safe, but actually to release you. I, I use this, this um, image that they really got hold of, which is the church isn't a bank vault where me as the minister is meant to keep, keep you the gold safe mm-hmm. until you go to glory. It's meant to be a post office sorting office where you come in, Jesus begins to sort you out, and when we discover where he wants to send you. Right. And so we're saying, where is Jesus sending us? What's going to be the impact of us gathering on a Sunday in the middle of Leicester on Leicester? Mm-hmm. And so we set a vision for being a community of missional disciples that would transform Leicester with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we said, how are we going to do that? And we ended up on a missional community structure where we said, let everyone find their missional calling first, and then let's gather people together where God's calling them to work together in that missional calling. And it wasn't easy because as people began to find their missional call, they would leave their Bible study group where they'd been in for quite some time, quite often, and they'd form a new community to reach new people. And that was a lot of pain for us as a church, people finding that difficult. We were saying, you don't even have to be here on a Sunday every week. You could go and do something different to reach new people. And that was disrupting the rotors. It was challenging because people were saying, you're devaluing the the preaching of the word. If you're not calling everybody to hear the preaching every single week, then you're devaluing the word. And I was challenging them to say, "We've, we've got to live it. As somebody has said, you've been educated beyond the level of your obedience you know you're not actually living it Mm -hmm. you're just listening to it and there's no application so there was a lot of there was a lot of challenge and pain um we really taught people we have to depend on the holy spirit the holy spirit isn't just there within services it's something we have to live by and he wants to lead our lives in mission day by day And that requires us to learn how to listen to him, to express his gifts of healing and supernatural gifts. Again, that wasn't what people were used to. And so we went through a process of change and and that was challenging, but we we held together as a church and, and God took us on a journey where people came to a point where they said, yeah, I want to be used um, by God. I want to be led by the Holy Spirit. I want to see other people come to know him. But, they weren't seeing people come to know him. Right. And and I got to the point where I said to, I remember it, we, we gathered all of the leaders of the missional communities together. There were about 20 or so communities at that time. We had a leadership of over 100 people gather together. And I said to them, how many of you have actually shared your faith with somebody in the last year? And by sharing faith, I've made it as broad as possible. So we had... Uh, telling a testimony of what Jesus has done for you, explaining the gospel, con- 
contributing an idea of what the Christian faith has to say about a particular issue into a conversation or uh, offering to pray for somebody. Less than 20% of those missional community leaders mm. had done that in the previous year. And I went home and I wept. Actually, I'm realizing that's a bit of a theme in my life. That I'm a bit of a blubbering mess. But I did. I wept before the Lord and I said, Lord, I'm so sorry because I failed to equip your people. Mm. And I also wept because I realized if they weren't doing it, they were our best Christians. Mm. And so if they weren't doing it, the rest of the church wasn't doing it. I went back to them in a few different conversations and I said, why aren't you doing it? And what they admitted to me really courageously mm -hmm. and generously was they didn't live with a daily compassion for the lost state of people that they knew. Mm -hmm. They didn't love them enough to say, I've got to share Jesus with them because otherwise they're in danger of hell and an eternal separation from him. And that they're not living with the knowledge of how much he loves them every day. And then the second thing that they said was, we don't know how to do this. Mm. And what they were meaning was, wasn't that they didn't know how to say something about Jesus. They just didn't think it would work. They didn't think what they would do would actually bring their friends closer to Jesus. So we went as a staff team to say, we're going to have to uh, learn how to train people. So we began to look for training materials and... The staff team were really helpful in saying, we're going to have to live this first. John, you can't just start training people. We're going to have to engage with some material, look at the principles of that, and then live it so that we have a testimony before we start to lead others to do mm -hmm. it. So we started there. And we ended up on this thing around uh, what Jesus did, which is asking questions and telling stories. Mm -hmm. And if we could get people to ask questions like, uh, could I pray for you? Or have you ever heard about anything about Jesus? Or have you ever uh, engaged with the Christian faith? And then if something happens in your life, just tell the story. So we began to say, guys, we're going to have to do this in our daily lives. And they said to me, you have to have stories, John, that are not to do with people you meet through church. Uh, as a church leader, it has to be just you doing it in your life. I said, yeah, I agree. So I remember this great story where I'd been um, overseas on mission to, uh, to uh, Tanzania, and we'd seen all the wonderful stuff that Jesus does. We'd seen demons cast out. We'd seen the sick healed, people throw away their canes. We'd, I'd seen a blind woman uh, restored her sight, and we'd seen loads of amazing things. And I came back to the, second, the secular secondary school that I was chair of governors of. And we'd had to rearrange the finance committee because I was on this trip. And so I knew that they were going to ask me about the trip. Mm -hmm. And so I went into that, uh, that finance meeting knowing that they would do it. And I'm going, I'm going to tell them this story. And so uh, I could have just said, yeah, we, we did some water projects and we went to a school and we saw some really amazing things that these projects were doing. And that was true. But when they asked me, how was your trip? I said, well, it was amazing because we saw Jesus do the things he does. We saw a blind lady healed. We saw people set free from evil. We saw somebody who couldn't walk, run up a hill and come back down and not using a cane anymore. 
And then I said, so it was an amazing trip. And I just left it hanging like that in this finance Brilliant. committee. And, uh, and they, they were silent. It felt a long time they were silenced for. And then one person said, did that really happen last week? I said, yeah, that's what Jesus still does today. And then Mohammed, who was this counselor on the local council, who was a Muslim, turned to me and he said, I've had a pain in my leg for three years that the NHS don't know what it is, don't know how to solve it. He puts his hand on me, he says, I want to be well, John. Mm. And so I say to him, well, that's great, Mohammed. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you afterwards. But he had to leave early. Two days later, he rings me up. He says, John, we've got to meet. I said, what's happened? He said, since I touched you, I've had no pain. Wow, beautiful. And so we met up in Cafe Nero on Market Street in Leicester. And he said, yep, since I've had no pain at all, I'm completely healed. And I said, well, the reason that happened is because you express faith in Jesus, who I've been talking about. Yeah. And he said, but the, the thing that's beyond that, John, is I've never experienced peace wow. like I've experienced. Love that. So he then says to me, how do I become a Christian? Hmm. Honestly, just straight off the bat. And I said, this is how you become a Christian. And Muhammad gave his life to Jesus Christ in Cafe Nero in, in Leicester on that day, all because we'd come down on this thing of, Wherever we are, let's tell stories about Jesus. And that released faith, and he put his faith. Now, the sobering reality is that even though he was only in his early 60s, three months later, Muhammad died of a heart attack. Wow. And again, that just broke me because I'm, I'm realizing, look, this is how important this is, that there are people out there that are longing to know you and actually, if your people don't learn how to share you with them, they're missing the eternal life that you're offering them, yeah. and their life could come to an end at any point. And so we, we, we told our testimonies, we trained the missional community leaders, and after we'd done the training, six months later, we asked them, how many of you have done this? And almost 100% of them had then shared Jesus. We then trained the whole church, mm -hmm. and uh, we asked them to lead the training in their missional communities, but we would come in and help do that. And that was another moment of pain for our church because they suddenly realized that we were expecting them to do it. Mm -hmm. We weren't just doing a course and letting them go through it, but we were going to hold them to account on have they done anything with this. Uh, and I cancelled everything else other than this training. I said, I'm cancelling Christian entertainment for four months. Mm -hmm. We're going to do training in, in how to share Jesus with those around us. And it'll only last four months if people start to come to know Jesus. Um, but if it doesn't take, we're going to keep going until it does. And I was spending all of the trust I'd built up over eight years of leadership yeah. there in one go. And people were telling me, I don't like this, John. They'd say, my mission community doesn't feel safe anymore. And I said, okay, I don't think it means it's not safe. It's just not comfortable anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think we need a bit of discomfort, guys, yeah. because we've got to live this out. This is our calling. This is our destiny. This is what Jesus wants to do through us. So first couple of months, it was tough. There was no testimonies. People were not happy. People were telling me, like Karen was telling me, 
I can't do this, John. I know I should, but I just can't do it. Second, second eight weeks of that four months, every week somebody got up and said, I led somebody to Jesus this week. Wow, come on. Yeah. And the great story was that Karen had said, I can't do this anymore, said, you never guess what happened, John. But Leslie, who sits next to me in my office, said to me uh, how terrible her life was. And because you've been saying you've got to ask the question when anybody shares a, a need, can I pray for you? I said it before I could stop myself. <laughs> and so, and then Leslie said, yes, you can pray for me. And, and I was horrified, but I prayed a prayer and God touched her because at the end of it, she was in tears. Mm. And she then told me for the last three months, I've been going to bed asking God, are you there? Because I need you if you're there because my life is so hard. Yeah. And what Karen didn't realize is that that's what was going on in Leslie's heart. Yeah. And all she needed to do was ask the question, can I pray for yeah. you? In order to realize that, that Leslie was way open to God because she'd been crying out to him already. And then Leslie comes to faith through Karen. Yeah. Oh, John, you know, I, I'm hoping people are listening, thinking, well, feeling maybe rebuked or challenged, stirred, like, come on, I've just got to, got to do it. I, I know that in my preaching, if I, if I can say, you know, last week when I led someone to the Lord or, or when I prayed for someone, it's much more compelling, isn't it, than quoting other sources. And, and we've all got it in us. It's just having the courage to ask those questions. Can I pray for you? Do you, do you know about Jesus? Can I share my faith? Anything like that and the stories will come. Listen, we're running low on time. So you then moved on, um, well, two and a half years ago, wasn't it? You left parish ministry. You had a fresh conviction. What was that? Yeah. Well, that was really to say every single person can lead people to know Jesus, and that will often mean that they need to start a church community in the context that they're doing that because the church is either so disconnected or so far or geographically so distant or culturally so disconnected that they're going to need to do church in a different way in order to reach new people. So Myriad exists in order to see thousands of new churches started by people who've never been ordained, never trained, but actually they can start to lead people to know Jesus and form a community that will enable them to, to be discipled in that context. So we're starting sort of learning communities to do that all over the country. We're currently training about 70 teams to do that, and we'll, we'll, we'll start another few hundred next year. And Jesus is doing that with his church in the UK, because we're just saying, if you're feeling called to this, get in touch with us. And people again and again are going, I can't believe you're doing this, because this is exactly what I feel called to. I'll tell you about what's happening for me in my village, because what you just said is exactly what I want to live by, which is that it it needs to be something we're living, not just historical stories. And so I live in a really upper middle class village in sort of a typical English countryside in Buckinghamshire. And I look around and I think nobody needs anything because they're all wealthy. But we've started a new worshiping community that Fiona leads, and she's a retired primary school teacher. We've now got about 80 people hanging around this community. Some people have come to know Jesus through this. And just the other day, I met somebody who is one of the most senior high court judges in the land. And I'm meeting him and his wife, and she's telling me that she's having cancer treatment. 
Um, I didn't, because of the way the conversation goes, get a chance to ask her, could I pray for her? But I then had a dream about her that night in which I was saying to her in the dream, "You are, uh, God says that this cancer will not end in death. And then I offered to pray for her. So I thought, okay, Lord, this is what you want to do. So I sent her an email and I say, um, I just wonder, um, God sometimes speaks to me through dreams. This is my dream last night. Um, I wonder how you'd feel about me coming to pray for you. And she comes back to me and says, I'm so moved by this. Mm. Um, I would love you to come and pray with me. And so these are people who are the most successful people you could possibly meet. They have everything that you think that anybody would want. Yeah. And yet, in the midst of the brokenness of human life, they are open and hungry for God to touch their lives. Um, so I'm going around next week, um, so I can't tell you the answer to that mm -hmm. story yet. Um, but we're just living it. And Fiona's leading this little church community. People are coming to faith. Um, we're doing church in a completely different way, eating food together, um, just sharing the word of God and doing stuff with kids. And it's very ordinary, very informal, but it's happening all over the country. Can I, can I tell one more story? Yeah, go for it. So I'll tell you about Phil, who used to be uh, Britain's strongest man. If you meet him, he's the biggest guy I've ever seen, <laughs> honestly. And there is a video, because it was on TV, of him dropping one of those heaviest wakes on his leg right. and shattering his leg. When he tells the story, he said, that was the best day of my life, because it revealed how I was just building my life on my own personal success and image, and it was just as fragile as, as I could drop something on my leg and it ended. Mm. And that led him to a journey that he came to faith in Jesus. And then he feels he should start a business of running a gym. So he runs a gym, and he and his Christian friends start a gym, and together they start to share faith with people. And he gets this idea that he should run alpha courses like he runs aerobics classes in his gym. Okay. So he, uh, so you can sign up for an alpha course online in his gym in the same way you can sign up for any of the other classes. And they openly share faith in their gym with the people they're getting to know who are their clients. Number of people come to faith on the alpha course. And they're trying to get them stuck into other churches. It's not easy. And so they end up going, when we connect with them, we could start something in the gym. Mm -hmm. And so they get a couple of other Christians who are connecting with the gym to form a team together. They start a midweek community in the evening, which is church. And they start discipling people who they're leading to faith in the gym. And they've got a church community now in their gym. Um, he's never been trained as a pastor. He's overseen by another pastor. And so we're not in any way saying that actually those who are trained aren't a key part of this. They're like the apostles in the early church. Yeah. We need that oversight and that guidance from those who've really um, been called by God to do that. Love that. But any of us yeah. can lead people to Jesus and start a church community that will make disciples where God has planted us. And when we do it in a way that connects with those people outside the church, in a way that makes sense to them, then actually the church begins to multiply and it really becomes that disciple-making movement that's gone on my heart for the whole of my ministry. Yeah. So that's that's one example from the Myriad uh, network of churches. Go on, give, give, us, give mm. us a couple more. So um, 
we're in uh, back in Hounslow, where I used to be, and Southall, and there's uh, multiple communities that are particularly reaching uh, different cultural backgrounds and different uh, religious backgrounds. And so there's a Telugu-speaking community from a particular part of India uh, where they speak Telugu, a just beautiful um, worship in a completely different style and anything that's, that we would naturally do within an English-speaking church. And they're living this out while their friends and family back in Manipur in uh, in in India are being persecuted for their faith and people are dying in their families over there and yet they're saying nothing's going to stop us sharing Jesus here and they're the most courageous people that I've met who are living out their faith but again they're very humbly saying we don't know how to do this thing called church we've never done it ourselves before we haven't done it in the UK before and they're, we're just walking alongside them and supporting them in doing that um, and then, uh, and then a fantastic story of just an ordinary family who begin to connect with people in their local area, just opening their home every Sunday morning saying, come in and do church. And, uh, and I was with them one Sunday when uh, they'd invited some friends of one of the members who'd come to faith. And they're sitting around like they always do, just sharing, um, interacting about a Bible passage about, and it was about healing. And so... Out of this, Sam, who leads that church community, says to the people gathered, does, does anybody need Jesus to do something for them today? And uh, Paul, who um, is one of these guests, says, I need healing. I've, again, the, the NHS can't solve this problem. I'm about to have a really, really um, risky operation that they're not certain will actually do any good. Could Jesus heal me? Heal me? We pray for him. And Jesus heals him and he's pain-free for the first time in years. And then Sam says, do you want to give your life to Jesus? He says, yes. Yeah. Um, and he literally says, because he's a scaffolder, he says, well, Jesus is the only one who knew how to sort this out, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> and so, yeah, of course I do. And, uh, and he was baptized uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, and it's just uh, a group of people in a home, kids running around, it's chaos. Yeah. They had a barbecue afterwards, but Jesus is in the middle of that community. Yeah. Um, and we're really believing that God is doing this as a movement across the nation. Mm. As part of this vision of, of just every single person having a missionary calling, we're really believing that, um, that the younger generation um, we haven't necessarily empowered them fully mm -hmm. in that calling, the way that church has formed. We're almost just asking them to belong to church rather than discover that call early on. And so we're partnering with something called The Send, uh, which has come out of the States and is beginning to uh, gather uh, 16 to 25-year-olds primarily in a nation around this call to live all in for Jesus and take the gospel wherever he sends them. Mm. And it does it by having larger events in stadium and arenas, but also smaller events in churches that that galvanize and and bring those young people together in a way that allows them to say yes to this all-in life for Jesus and to begin to take a step forward in, uh, in actively sharing the gospel where Jesus has sent them. And so uh, there's a coalition of, ch of the church in the UK that have come together around this. And it launched publicly in January 24, so just recently. And it, um, it enables 
young people in that age bracket to come together with others in their, their age profile to see the numbers that God is doing this in and then to begin to network uh, in their local area and begin to be supported in living this missional life. And we started to do it just experimentally. And uh, and so we had, last week, we had 500 uh, young people in a YMCA just off Oxford Street in London and praying for revival, praying for God to move in their lives and that they would take the gospel out. And then they went out on the streets in, on, in Oxford Street. And so 200 of them went out on the streets and they shared Jesus. One guy and preached the whole of McDonald's on Oxford Street. <laughs> and two people gave their lives to Christ publicly when he gave an altar call. Mm. And, uh, and then others were healed. Others came to faith through personal conversations. And we just got a little snapshot that when you call young people and young adults to a radical life of mission, which we know is there's no better way than to live all in for Jesus. Don't live a half version of the Christian faith, live it fully. And they they want to live that out. They don't want to just live something that is safe and, and is repeating the mistakes of the church that we've made up until now. And so we're gonna be gathering in the first large event on the 7th of July in Wembley Arena. Um, but there will be local versions of this all over um, the nation. And so if you would love a team to come to galvanize and gather young people and young adults in your area, just go on to the send.org.uk website, uh, register an interest, and we'd love to partner with you because we're here to serve the church. We're not setting up something new. It's a, it's a movement. It's a gathering. It's an injection of faith. And we'd love to work with you. Wonderful. Well, John, I know you're one of the key sort of mobilizers of the church, capital C in the nation. You've got a massively strategic role backing you to the hilt. Uh, any last words you want to share? Anything you, you, we haven't shared that you really want to? No, I just, I just hope that people have, have caught from my story this sense of wherever they are, that if they'll start to just actively seek the leading of the Holy Spirit, asking the Lord what he wants to, them to take as the next step, then he can take them wherever he wants them, as he's done for me. And one of those principles that I always always teach is don't get too preoccupied by the big picture or even overwhelmed by all the discouragement that we face in our nation at the moment. Just ask the Lord, what's my next step? And if you'll ask that, he'll give it to you. Take it and you'll be on the move with Jesus and he'll, he'll lead you wherever he wants you to. Amen. Can people be in touch with you? They can uh, through myriad.church and uh, I'd love to have feedback. And if people would like to get involved in any of the training we're doing, we'd love to help them with that. Wonderful. Okay. Well, we'll put that in the blurb. John McGinley, thanks so much for your time, brother. It's been great, Simon. Thanks for all you're doing through the podcast. It's inspirational. Wonderful. Well, listen, guys, I hope you've been inspired, challenged. I've certainly been stirred and uh, sort of feel chivied on to to maximize even more uh, my my pursuit of christ and i hope you have too so listen if you want to share this with someone please do gossip the podcast if you want to give us a great review that'd be helpful spotify itunes if you want to be in touch with me simongilbo.com uh, i want to thank adam thomas dear for the editing mike sandiman for the mixing and next week we'll have another fantastic guest looking forward to that in the meantime go for it go for it take some risks step out in faith pray for someone share your faith go on you can do it Go for it and toodaloo.